Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew so far, can we agree that Jesus has been looking at things very differently than most of the people around him? Even his disciples, the Pharisees, the crowds, they all have sort of approached Jesus with some sort of agenda uh, or maybe specific worldview about who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. Uh, And he's really seen all of reality very differently. Uh, He's been seeing it, what makes it feel at times backwards or inside out, or we've called it kind of upside down at times. And and he preaches a, a kingdom that seems very abnormal to people. And I think even to us as we read it, it feels uncomfortable and abnormal to us right now. Uh, he's been teaching these strange paradoxes, things like those who thirst and mourn and persecuted are blessed. Do you guys remember that from Matthew chapter 5? He's been teaching things like the first shall be last and the last first. He's been teaching things like the greatest is the most humble and so on. And he's been taking one by one all of these cultural values and flipping them on their head. And and here in our text today, uh, we have Jesus teaching that to save your life truly, you must lose it. That the Son of Man... This epic image from the book of Daniel, this, this kingly Christ has to be crucified and killed. The Son of Man who will come in glory must first suffer and die. That this victorious Christ triumphing over the enemies of the world and the demonic must be crucified. And these are all very upside down ways of looking at the kingdom and even looking at this understanding of who Jesus was supposed to be. Or so it seems for us. And we see here that his disciples don't quite get it either. And so as we read from Matthew chapter 16, I think I even just want to put on the, on the proverbial table for you some of my fears with this passage. I'm gonna, it's a very well-known passage. So if you spend any time around church or have heard anything really about Jesus or the Bible, chances are this is maybe one of those phrases, themes, or stories you might have heard before. Uh, and so one of my fears, honestly, for us as a church uh, is, is that it's been over-metaphorized. Uh, that's not really a word, but I made it a word for tonight. That we, we have taken this story as, as such a metaphor that it really loses all of its reality for us. And so it's a cute story to tell. It's a, it's a good theme to throw out there and a good saying, but it really has no weight for us. And so I, I've heard people talk about this, this text in terms of just we all take up our own cross in different ways. Oh, my boss is angry this week, and that's my cross to bear. That's not really what Jesus is talking about here. And so I, I just want us to be, to be aware of our tendency to over-metaphorize this in an attempt to distance ourselves from this intense call that Jesus has for us. Uh, the second is I think it's, uh, over time, has also been overly aggressive and legalistic, right? That somehow built into the Christian ethos is we have to, like, suffer, cause ourselves pain, and we're not really following Christ unless we're under constant misery and pain all day, every day. And so there are certain sects of Christianity that embrace this uh, fully, and I think that is also missing the point of what Jesus is talking about here. And the third, uh, my, the third fear, the, the third danger I kind of, ha- uh, that we have, have is uh, that's this, this has just been so softened and padded and excused out of existence. And so we say things like, well, this is, this is for them. This doesn't really apply to us. Or Jesus didn't actually mean take up our cross. He, he meant something very different. And I, I, I don't know about you, but when I read the words of Jesus, I take him at his meaning. And so uh, each of these kind of, I think, poor views of this text and dangerous for us, inadvertently or, or on purpose, preaches a, a false gospel. And so I think from here, we can get some sort of prosperity gospel. We can get some sort of poverty gospel or, or something else. And I think what we need to do as a church today is look at what Jesus is actually saying and, and try to figure out what that means for us today. And so let's read here, now that I put my fears on the table for you guys, uh, let's read Matthew chapter 16, 
We're going to start in verse 21, and we're going to go to verse 28. Okay, so from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So I'm going to pause there for just a second and to help catch us up, because that is a really important phrase. I didn't hear any gasps. It's okay. Don't worry. You might gasp after, after we're done with this. But contextually, this is a really big deal verse because this marks the beginning of a whole new section in the book of Matthew. Very subtle, this Matthew guy, as he writes. So this marks a really big narrative shift in the gospel of Matthew, in the story of Jesus. So Jesus is leaving his primary area of ministry behind. This sentence concludes his ministry in kind of northern Israel, kind of the Sea of Galilee up in the northern area by Capernaum. That's been his home base this whole time. So it's where he spent a lot of his life and ministry. The people there have gotten to know him quite a bit. Uh, that's where it seems like a lot of his disciples are from. And, and so honestly, it's not a very big area. It's, it's sort of like uh, if Jesus were to do all his ministry in like Ventura and then suddenly venture out outside of Ventura. And so his ministry has been pretty concentrated in this one area of Israel, and this marks the first shift that he is going somewhere different. And so there's a couple of firsts in this text that we have. It's the first time that Jesus explicitly lays out his plan to go to Jerusalem. Right? It's never been as, it's so explicit. There's always been some intentionality, but he says he is going to Jerusalem. The book of Luke says he has set his face on Jerusalem. It's the first time he predicts his arrest by the hands of the Jewish authority in such detail. And it's the first time that Jesus predicts his death and crucifixion. So this is a narrative shift, but it's also a thematic shift a little bit. So up until this point, Matthew's been working on some specific goals. And so if you are new to the story of Matthew, we'll do a little bit of catch up. The very beginning, Matthew is writing to who? What kinds of people? What? Jews, well done. Yeah, primarily a Jewish audience. So Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel was a reasoning to his Jewish brothers and sisters that Jesus is the Messiah. So there's four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. Each one has just a little bit of a different focus or intent. And so Matthew's writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters, writing an apologetic that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he does this with lots of ways at the very beginning by connecting him to the Old Testament through things like a genealogy, through all these really specific prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled, and so on. And in chapter 4, we see the shift of Matthew to Jesus announcing God's kingdom. And we see Jesus is on the scene as a teacher, reinterpreting and bringing clarity to God's law and his intent with the law. And so we'll hear and we'll read lots of things like, you've heard it said and now I tell you. And Jesus is going about redefining the Jewish way of life and bringing the story of God back in. And those first chapters in in Matthews 5, 6, and 7 contain the longest and, and largest block of teaching for Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, which is really to his disciples a, a manifesto of how to live in this kingdom that he's talking about. But for everyone who's not, already his disciples, an invitation in. So at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that there are two groups of people following Jesus. The disciples, who are essentially people who have said, yes, I'm all in, let's do this. And then the crowds, the people who are just looking at him because he's the hot new rabbi in town, right? He's the new preacher that's out and about and got the most podcast downloads. And he's a guy healing people and casting out demons. And so in this particular area of Israel, he's got a huge following. And so to the crowds, it's this invitation into the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 8, what happens in 8, in eight 9, and 10, and Jesus brings the reality of the kingdom of God to the people's lives. So it's not just intellectual, it's not just abstract, it's not just morality or anything like that, but there is a tangible transformation when you are in the kingdom of God, and Jesus demonstrates that by healing people, casting out demons. And in Matthew eleven twelve thirteen, 13, he's collected a bunch of stories about how people responding to Jesus and his message. And this section that we're in right now is, is exploring all these different expectations that people had about the Messiah. And it's in that context where all these people have different expectations of the Messiah that we see this narrative and thematic and even tonal shift in the book of Matthew. That he's, no, like, even notice it in the way he's teaching and the way he's giving parables and the types of pe- people he's, he's healing and the cities he's going to. So he's definitely spent some time laying a foundation about the kingdom of God, and now he's on a mission with his disciples, and they are on their way to Jerusalem. Okay, verse 21. 
I hope that's helpful. Okay, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, let's ask the Lord to help us understand this text tonight. Father, we uh, are so grateful for uh, this opportunity to come and to worship you, to, to receive from you. Uh, and, and God, what do you have for us? We want to be open a, as a church to receive from you. And so would you help us understand uh, what it is about this text that we really need to sit and grapple with this evening? And Father, would you help me teach and, and preach in a way that is faithful to what's here, but is also faithful to what you want to do in this church? And God, would you help us as a church uh, receive it? Even like Zach was, was sharing earlier, would we receive it and also be doers of the word? Uh, so God, would you empower us for that journey this evening? Amen. Amen. Okay. I, uh, if you guys don't know, I used to work at the Apple store in Thousand Oaks. It was, one, it was like the first job, like the first job I had when I moved down here. So I moved down here jobless, living on my savings and the generous support of my parents and people like that when I was in Bible college. And I decided uh, that needed to end pretty quickly because I was running out of money. So I got a job and I was working at the Apple store uh, and just kind of started as a guy on the floor who tried to sell you an iPhone and then, you know, worked my way into some different spots. And, and the job I was in the longest was I was uh, something called... Called, it's a little patronizing, so apologies, but I was a genius at the Apple store. Uh, I don't like that title either. Okay, so which means, okay, by day when the store was open, I'd help diagnose all your computer problems. So you'd say, oh, my laptop isn't charging. We'd try to figure it out. And by night, after the store closes, I was one of those elves who would actually fix the computer. So we'd open up computers and take out parts, and, and it was surprising that they lived like a 20-year-old do stuff like that. But uh, I was there doing that, and a friend of mine, a guy named Mario, uh, was one of my kind of... Uh, uh, trainers as I was there. And so he's kind of teaching me uh, both how to, how to fix computers, but also how to relate and work with people specifically as we're trying to help them understand their problems with their computer. And so he was explaining to me uh, about how to interact with people and, and just how to understand what happens when people come to the Apple store with their computers. And he drew this chart for me to help uh, understand people. And so you can put that triangle up. And so he started with a triangle, right? And he said, okay, this is what people want when they come to the Apple store. When they want their computer fixed, they want it good. They want quality. Uh, they want it fast, right? They, they want their problem eliminated right away. And they want it cheap. They don't have to pay anything. And, uh, and he says, yeah, Bert, everyone wants all three of these when they come to the Apple store to get their thing fixed. But the reality of time and space and physics and, and realities, we can only do two at a time. We cannot do all three. So he says, you can have it good and fast, but it's not going to be cheap. It's going to cost you something. You can have it fast and cheap, but chances are quality is going to suffer and it's not going to be good. And you can have it good and cheap, but it's going to take a while. He says, we can't do all three, but people come in with this expectation that they can have all three. And I was thinking of this chart as I was reading through this passage and thinking about you guys, uh, because this chart came to my mind, particularly because I believe we live in a culture that wants all three in life. We want a good life, we want it when we want it, and we don't want to have to sacrifice too much for it. We want life good, fast, and cheap. We want all three, right? All right. The problem is you can't have all three. Sorry if I'm the first one breaking this to you. But you can't have all three. And so I also think we live in a culture that will sacrifice one of these for the other two. And I think we live in a culture that will sacrifice good to get what we want when we want it without having to sacrifice too much. I think we will get life fast and cheap and sacrifice the good part 
of life. I want you guys to think about how much time have you spent on finding the easiest way to do something? Like the easiest way to avoid traffic on a Sunday afternoon in Ventura. Like I'm never so motivated as when I'm trying to find an easier way to do something that I have to do, right? If this thing takes me 10 steps, I'm going to find a way to do it in three steps. How much time do you spend on finding the cheapest option for whatever you're trying to, to buy or to do? I'm like, this drives Sherry crazy. I'm a, like a serial researcher. So if you guys don't know, we just bought a minivan a little while ago because we're having our third kid and like our car's exploding. So we had to buy a minivan and like we spent months and months. And so the, the, here's how this goes whenever we have to make a big purchase in the Alcorn house. Sherry sort of references this thing we might need someday. I'd take six months and research the heck out of every virtual possibility, verbally process it with her throughout those six months. And to the end, she just says, I don't care. Just like bring me home the minivan. And I don't care anymore. Like I've just worn her down with my, because I want to like, we have a limited amount of money. I want to like make the best decision possible for our family. So I research the heck out of everything. So anything I have just bought, I'm an expert in. I can say really boldly. So for another week or so, I'll have all this memory of what it took to buy a minivan. So if you need to buy a minivan, now's the week to ask me and then I'll forget it and on to something new. This happened when I proposed to Sherry and I had to spend a big bunch of money buying an engagement ring, right guys? Like I suddenly became an expert in diamonds. Like I knew the cuts, I knew the color, the clarity, uh, I knew like the different types of bands uh, and I spent months and months researching the heck out of this ring for Sherry. It happens with every part of my life. Now those like finding the, the fastest way to do something, the most efficient way, or finding the cheapest way to do something, it's not, those aren't inherently bad things. Hear me. Those are fine things as you're trying to uh, make the most of your time or make the most of your money or resources or something like that. But it becomes a problem when that same philosophy gets introduced into how we live our life with Jesus. We're willing to pass up on quality in our life with Jesus, to get what we want quickly and without having to sacrifice too much for it. And I truly believe we, we live in a time and a place that will choose the easy option over the best option. I think at the heart of what Jesus is talking about here in these couple of verses is he wants the best option for us. And he's talking with someone who's trying to take the easy way out. This is 4th of July weekend, right? As we're thinking of America, I want you guys to think about some of the, the founding philosophies of, of America. In our, in our ethos is that we have a, a right, nor a calling, to the pursuit of life, liberty, happiness. Built right into our country is this culturally accepted value that you should have a good life, that you should have a comfortable life, you should have a happy life. How many of our decisions are formed by our own comfort? The jobs you take, kind of the friendships you have, even how you interact with, with church and, and doing life with your community, how much of that is informed by what is easy or comfortable for you? I know frequently that's my like filter for how to get stuff done is, is what's most comfortable for me. And I mean, to you guys, to a certain extent, you've already given up a little bit of comfort when it comes to church life. So if you're not, if you're on the newer side to Anthem, you may have noticed we don't have a ton of programs. We don't have a ton of like extra stuff that a church collects over time as, as they grow. And those things are both intentional, but it's also because you guys are sacrificing to be a part of a new church in town. So if you've come from another church, chances are you've noticed we don't have quite as many things. Things are done a little different. We meet in the evenings. That's sacrificing your guys' weekends because we don't have a place to meet in the mornings. We have to sacrifice a little bit of our comfort to gather together regularly. Now, we don't have to show up and unload a trailer anymore, but that, those days may be in front of us again. So anyway, well done. You're on your way in, in embracing this life of uncomfortability. But by and large, I think we are saturated with this idea that we can take the easy way, the comfortable way. We choose the path of least resistance. And the search for comfort and even its cultural validity in our time and place add up to a very upside-down view of life with Jesus. That's really important 
because occasionally we can characterize what Jesus is saying upside down. And the truth is, we have so skewed how we're meant to live that we're the ones actually living upside down. And Jesus comes proclaiming the right way to live, the way we were intended to live. We have been somehow fooled or have fooled ourselves into thinking that the Christian life ought to be easy, comfortable, and even normal. In an essay he once wrote, C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. So good. I love C.S. Lewis. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. So good. We filter our life with Jesus in terms of how will this make me happier? How will this improve my life now? How will this make my life easier now? How will this make me have a better marriage now? How will this make me have better, more well-behaved kids right now? Or how will this make me have more money right now? And all of those questions are totally missing the point. Because Jesus is calls to come and die. In, in uh, Mere Christianity, a book he wrote, Lewis continues the same idea, saying, In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end, but if you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. He's super optimistic. So far, end is comfort, happiness, ease of life. Both C.S. Lewis and Jesus agree that both tell us we'll find despair. We'll ultimately end up losing our life if that's our end goal. But there has to be another way, right? What Jesus is calling to is not the easy option. It's the best option. It's the way we were meant to live. All of Matthew is this proclamation of of the good life and how we were intended to interact with the God that made us. And it's not easy, and it doesn't happen right away. And he's teaching us what the best option for life is, and he starts by confronting someone looking for the easy option, and that's Peter. Peter, who Josh just preached last week, had this epic revelation about who Jesus is. And, and Jesus encourages him, saying, yes, well done, Peter. On, on this rock, on this confession that you have made that I am the Christ, I will build my church. Well done. And it's like, oh, man, Peter's finally figuring it out. And, and in the very next story, guys, he's totally missing it once again. Oh man, Peter here is, it's not just Peter, but he's kind of representative of all Jews who were expecting this certain vision of the Messiah. And he's just the one who, I don't know, gets picked to ask the question. And it comes right on the heels of this epic Peter moment. And he seems like he's finally got it. Look what he proclaims in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came to him, no, the other verse, when Jesus came to him into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter's got a portion of this. And in our story today, he's missing a portion of this. He's got some holes in his theology about Jesus. And according to Peter, Jesus is the Christ. He's the king, but Peter must not have had the same notions in mind that Jesus did about who this Christ is and and what he ought to be doing. Peter's thinking, he's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. We've been waiting for this guy for hundreds and thousands of years. He's finally here let's do this. Let's do some conquering. Like, finally, we have the upper hand over these Romans, over the Greeks, over the Babylonians, or the Assyrians. We finally have the upper hand because we have God in the flesh ready to lead us to victory. Like, Peter and the crew have got to be so stoked at this point. They finally have an advantage in their constant underdog battle with neighboring nations. He's amped. And Jesus says, here's how this is going to work. I have to die. I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die. And Jesus says, this is the plan. And Peter is stunned. He's like, wait a second. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Let's do this. But Jesus says, that's not the way it's going to be done. 
Jesus says this is the plan, and it's more than just a prediction. Jesus is not like a really good guesser about what's going to happen. He's not reading the cultural kind of cues and saying, yeah, these guys don't like me. I'm probably going to die. He's saying this is his intent from the beginning. And the reality is this was the plan of God from the very beginning. This didn't start when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This has been going on since the beginning of time. Look at Genesis chapter 3, all the way at the beginning of this story. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this beautiful, lavish earth for humanity to live in and cultivate the raw resources of the land, to, to name these animals, to be fruitful, to, be multiply, to, to multiply. And sin enters, right? Satan or evil takes the form of, of this serpent and, and tempts Eve She disobeys and distrusts God. And in this moment in the story when God is kind of telling what has to happen at this point, we have a glimmer of this redemptive plan in Genesis 3, 15. And God's talking to the serpent or this manifestation of evil or the Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, referring to Eve and humanity, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, God was going to win, but it wasn't going to cost nothing. This is what the prophets have been prophesying about. Look at Isaiah 53. I have a small sampling of some of these prophetic promises of guys who would write about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 3, talking about this future Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces when he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him with stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. A few verses over in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Talking about this future Messiah. He has put him to grief. And in verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. It's been the plan all along that Jesus had to suffer and die. And his disciples have forgotten their own history. They've forgotten their own prophets. They've forgotten their own story with God. They've gotten so wrapped up in bringing the kingdom of God here that they have forgotten how the kingdom has to come. And in this moment, Peter is aligning more with Satan than with his own story. He sounds more like Satan did in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, when Jesus when uh, the devil takes Jesus up on the mountain, shows him everything, took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus knew then that was not the way it was going to happen. Everyone was going to worship him, but that's not the way it was going to happen. And Peter, in this moment, takes this momentum that Jesus has and healing all these people and and feeding all these people and preaching about this new kingdom. He said, yes, let's do it. And Jesus is saying, that's taking the easy way out. This is not the way the Messiah will bring about the kingdom of God. Peter says, Jesus, you have this all mixed up. You're the king. Let's do some conquering. But Jesus, fulfilling every prophecy about himself, knowing the plan from the beginning, says, this is not the way it's going to happen. From the very beginning, this is how it has to happen. And he's saying with this rebuke that Peter and his other disciples are the ones seeing things upside down. They're not seeing the story of God clearly. They're seeing things through the lens of the world, of their own flesh, and worse yet, even the enemy. And they're not paying attention to their own story. And in Matthew 16, what a stark pendulum swing from you are Peter to you are Satan. Like I love Peter's high highs and low lows. 
And this is not necessarily the point of this text or whatever, but I just absolutely love how patient God is with Peter. And I'll even say the Peters who have these intense high highs and low lows, who have these moments where they get it and they grasp the gospel and then they totally miss it the next moment. God is ever patient with you and I like this because how often do we not get it? And like, how often are the things of God so fuzzy and and upside down to us? God is patient with the Peters. I love that. But anyway, Jesus, yet again in this story, turns to his disciples and uses this as a teaching moment. That's why these two paragraphs are matched together for us, is because Jesus immediately goes from from rebuking Peter and correcting him to teaching his disciples what it really means to follow him. And so clearly Peter has a misunderstanding about what's going on, and so Peter pivots, or Jesus pivots to teach the disciples about what it's really like to follow him. And this is really the crux of the passage, by the way. That was sort of all set up to get us to this point in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the heart of this passage here. And here in it, we see three things that are, that are really important. We see a couple of things here. We see first that Jesus teaches that to be a disciple, you must carry your cross. We must carry a cross. This is essential for every follower of Jesus. This is not optional for super Christians or people who've been Christians for a little while. It's not like reserved for people who've been to Bible college or seminary. This is for all Christians. And Jesus teaches us what that cross is, and he gives us good reasons why cross-carrying is worth it. He doesn't have to. He could have just said, this is the way it is, but he gives us some reasons to say, this is why it's worth it. So first, Jesus teaches that we uh, that we all must carry a cross. And he doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room here. You can't metaphorize this. You can't soften it. And as Jesus took up his cross, so do we. What Jesus clearly teaches is a specific pattern to follow. Cross, then crown. Self-denial, then glory. Suffering, then reward. We like to mix that up a little bit or just lop off the first part and just say, we like the crown part, the glory. We want the reward. We want the good parts of life because you and I like to take the easy way out and just get to the good payoff at the end. We like the glory. We like the reward. We do not like the cross. I think right now we live in a time and a place when, when putting in the work, putting in the effort, having a long view of something is not memorialized. It's not brought up as a value. Taking cheap shots, the easy way out is. Jesus calls us to a very different life. And I think we all live in this tension because we want to follow Jesus. But we don't actually want to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? In my notes, there's italics, so it makes sense. I think often... We say we want to follow Jesus. Yes, I want to be a Christian. I want to live the life and the lifestyle of Jesus, do the things he did. But if it like actually impacts our life in any way, we're like, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for that kind of Christianity. You're going to ask me to give my money away to poor people? You're going to ask me to take care of sick and have the orphans come into my house? You're going you're gonna to ask for my time on a weekend or even a weekend and sometime during the week? No, 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 this is too much. This is too much. We live in this tension of wanting to follow Jesus, but not actually wanting to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to miss out on all of the promises of this world. And so we end up with this weird hybrid synergy of, I really like Jesus' teaching about how we should treat each other but I also don't want to miss out on anything this world has to offer. 
And I think this is where the modern day church at large gets into a ton of trouble because we want Jesus plus the world. We want Jesus plus a sweet Instagram adventure story. We want Jesus plus like a car with heated seats. We want Jesus plus like a house with an extra bedroom. We want Jesus and the beach and the mountains. We want Jesus, but we also want nationalism. We, we want Jesus, but we also kind of want consumerism where we can buy more stuff. I want character, but I don't want suffering. I want patience, but I don't want to wait for it. I want kindness, but I don't want people around me that agitate me. I, I want to hear God's voice, but I don't want to carve out any time to let him speak. I want to live the life of Jesus, but I don't actually want to take up my cross. I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to miss out on what this world is promising me. And I think often we as Christians here in Ventura live really anemic Christian lives because we try to have it all. And we can't have it all, and so we'll settle for what's fast and what's cheap. And we miss out on what's good for us. Jesus' vision and teaching about the kingdom of God quite often comes into conflict with our vision of Christianity. He promises suffering and tribulation. Why? Because he suffered. He faced tribulation. And following Jesus means actually following him. One of the, the dangers that we've gotten into in the last hundred or so years maybe even a little bit longer, is so seeing Jesus as exclusively God and we forget that he was also fully man, thus an example for us in how to live. And here, Jesus is teaching literally how to mimic himself. If you want to follow me, it means taking up your cross, denying yourself and following me. So what is this cross that we have to carry? Is it, is it martyrdom? Is it persecution, right? Suffering for believing, preaching, and living the gospel, which I will be very frank with you, you probably will not get in Southern California, probably in some other parts of the world, but not here. Is it enduring suffering in this time, like trials, storms of life, the death of a loved one, economic hardship, poor health, a terrible boss, a nagging wife, a lazy husband, a rebellious child? That might be any combination of those things, but at the heart, when we're talking about cross-carrying, cross-carrying centers on self-denial. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is zero gray area for us to wiggle out of this. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? It means to take up your cross and to literally deny yourself. To follow Jesus means to deny self. In his epic work, The Institutes of Christian Faith, John Calvin, coincidentally we named our son after him, teaches that the sum of Christian life is self-denial. Is that how we would summarize our Christian life? I'm using the we because I'm in this with you guys. Is this, we, is this how we would summarize our life with Jesus? Can any of us honestly say, like, our life is characterized by self-denial? I think we all have moments of this, right? We have moments of glory and moments of grace in this. But I think it's probably a struggle for us, all of us. This is how Jesus defines life with him. Jesus says there can only be one king. There can only be one. And he says, it's me. Not me, Bert. Me, Jesus. He says, it's me. There can only be one king, and as long as you are king, Jesus is not. And so at the heart of self-denial is saying, Jesus is king and I am not. It's not beating yourself. It's not like starving yourself or, or something like this. It's living and understanding this worldview that you are not the king of your life. If you somehow think you can be the king of your life and a Christian, someone has told you a lie at some point in your life. Being a Christian 
means living with the understanding and awareness that Jesus is king and we are not. A commentator on the book of Matthew, this guy Frederick Dale Bruner, really brilliant if you ever want some help digging deeper into Matthew, he answers the question of what makes a Christian a Christian this way. He says two things. First is confessing Jesus Christ, or Jesus as Christ, Jesus as Lord. And second is following Jesus as the suffering Christ. It's a perfectly simple summary. As Christians, we confess, like Peter did, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's also an act of following him as the suffering servant. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to self and live for Christ That's what Jesus is teaching here. And it's like, for to boil it down to the very, very simplest, it's a life following Jesus means you're not the king of your own life. Graciously, Jesus not only gives us the the what and the how of the cross, but also some of the why. And here in verses 25, 26, and 27, it's these three fours, one right after another to say, here is why life with me is so much better Look at these verses. In these three verses, we have these three motives for why we follow Christ the way we do. In verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The person who rejects God, God's will, and instead pursues his own will for his life ultimately loses eternally. And every earthly good he's trying to protect. You guys have heard the phrase, you can't take it with you. Jesus has a much longer view of our lives than we do. He has an eternal perspective of our lives. And he says investing in that life pays much bigger dividends than investing in this one. Verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Essentially saying, acquiring all the money, pleasure, comfort, power, security that this world brings has no lasting benefit. I don't care how rich you are, you die at some point. And you're not taking that money with you. And Jesus is more concerned about our soul, which he says is impacted by how we live here and now. It's not some ethereal, abstract thing that will be sorted out after we die. He says the decisions we make here have eternal impact. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. It's a beautiful phrase, be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Nothing, according to Paul, in this world is worth being found in Christ. Invest in that. And finally, and maybe most importantly, in verse 27, Matthew 16, Matthew records Jesus saying, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Meaning, Jesus wins in the end. Do you want to be on the winning team? Jesus' victory ultimately conquers all. His glorious second coming with his angels and the glory of his Father will bring judgment for those who have chosen to follow their own will and be their own king. And reward is for those who have taken up the cross and followed Jesus. He's victorious. He's bringing reward, repaying those who are following him. And these are three eternal implications for the earthly decisions we're making here and now. And you guys, some of you guys know George. He's not here tonight, but he always says we don't talk about death enough. 
Because for him, death reminds us of this earthly perspective, or this eternal versus earthly perspective that we have. That he sees as one of the biggest problems in the church is we have lost our eternal perspective of life. The decisions we make here and now, we make them because of the the forces here and now or the cultural pressures here and now. And we have lost what it means to live for something much bigger than our 80, 90, 100 year old, 100 years on this earth. And as Christians, we're choosing to hold out for future glory rather than glory now. And the reason Jesus rebukes Peter is because Peter wants glory right now. That's the easy way, and that's not how it's done. Jesus says it's not the way of my kingdom. And finally, in this, in this chapter, we're not really going to spend any time on it because because this is really, all it is, is just a preview, a teaser for what Josh is going to teach about next week. But at the very end, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his, own, in his kingdom. So we'll dig into that next week, but this is that, that teaser that Jesus says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to gracefully show you what it means to have an eternal perspective and not just think about things here on earth. Okay, so Jesus is very much throughout the whole book of Matthew teaching about this upside-down kingdom. And specifically, he's teaching us how to be a part of that upside-down kingdom. And I think like many moments throughout the book of Matthew, we're sort of faced with this moment where we have to be a tad self-introspective and say, am I actually going to follow this Jesus? Are we actually going to live lives demonstrating that we follow Jesus? Are we going to make earthly decisions now that have eternal impact, not just earthly impact? Jesus tells Peter kind of the basic components of the gospel himself, right? His death, he even tells about his resurrection, which Peter totally glosses past in this story. Then he tells the disciples of their work, right? Jesus basically said, look, here's the work that I have to do. I have to do this to save your souls, to play my part in the, in the redemptive story of God. And he doesn't say, so sit back, relax. I got this one covered, guys. No, but he he says, it's time to get to work. I have my job to do, and you have your job to do in my kingdom. The truth of the gospel is there is nothing stopping you. No past hurt, no offense, no sin that's keeping you from the free gift of grace of our Lord. There's no achievement necessary. There's no roadblock to finding yourself in the family of God. Confess Jesus. But once we've been shown this grace, once we've been mercifully saved from the domain of darkness, rescued from behind the gates of the enemy, we live a life of response. Right? We don't, we don't model a life that just kind of sits there passively and waits for, for Jesus to do everything. He's already done everything that needs to be done to bring you into his family. And so we as Christians live this life of response, a response that says Jesus is king and I am not. So for those who are, are far from God, who do not know Jesus, the invitation is to come to Jesus, to, to come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your striving, your despair, your hopelessness, and find life in Christ. And to the Christian, how's that coming in second thing going? How's that self-denial going? Is this a moment for us to have a little bit of a gut check and say, you know, I've actually fallen into the trap of living for myself. Tonight is a night to repent. Are you saying no to sin, sin that is so easily entangles us? Are you saying yes to Christ? Are we saying yes and doing something difficult for him, something that costs us something? Sacrificing time or money or convenience or comfort, safety to do those things that Jesus calls us to do, like feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, receiving the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick. According to Jesus, self-denial or living a life that says I am not the king is at the heart of the Christian life. Or put it another way, to follow Jesus 
we actually have to follow Jesus. Follow him as Lord. And so the question I just want to end on is who's your king? And Zach and the guys are going to come up and they're going to lead us in a time of, of response and singing and, and communion and all these things I'll explain in just a moment. But I want us to camp out on this, this one question, who, who is your king? So the reality is Jesus is king, right? But we don't often live like that reality. So are we living a life that says Jesus is king? That my comfort, my security, my desires... My preferences, my agenda, those things come second because Jesus is king over my life. Who is your king? Is it you or is it Jesus? Yeah, Isabel's got it right. And maybe the answer to this profound question is the opening question of a very ancient confession of Christian faith. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That the key to finding true life in Christ is to understand that we are not our own. Father, would you help us in these moments where we sit and grapple with some of these questions in this text, would you help us as we respond uh, to what you are doing and what you've already done? God, would you help us see you as king in all areas of our life? Would it be our comfort that we are not our own? We were bought and brought into your family. And so, Father, as we sing together, would you... Uh, minister to our hearts. Um, if we are here very much understanding that we have been the king of our lives, would you, would you give us the boldness to repent and to confess you are king, not me? If we're coming in here, Lord, just limping from life, would you minister to us? Would you lead us gracefully back to yourself as as the true source of all satisfaction and fulfillment. God, would you help us as a church understand what it means to actually follow you? Would you help us dig deeper? Help us to not be hypocrites. But would you show us what it means to live a life of coming in second and saying, Jesus, you are my king. I'm not my king. Amen.